0: Chapter 12, What Jesus Would Do Since we were children, we've been told to be like Jesus. We grew a little older and strapped on our WWJD bracelets to remind us what would Jesus do in any given situation. These tokens we wore on our wrists were good tokens, reminiscent of the tassels that the Lord instructed His people to put on the corners of their garments, to remind them, to look at. To remember the commands, to do the commands, and not to follow their own hearts and their own eyes which they were inclined to whore after. We got a little older and maybe got a little more frustrated and upset at different situations in life and the people in them. We don't like to remember or talk about what we may have done, like calling someone names who wronged us in some way. We might have held up a finger while driving our cars to help the other driver realize that they cut us off. We might have even returned the wrong that another did to us to send home the message that we are not a doormat to be walked on and mistreated. And then someone older and wiser than we admonished us with the words, that's not very Christlike." We have been told our entire lives to live like Jesus lived, to walk as he walked, and to love like Jesus. In other words, we were told to be like Jesus, and rightly so. We get this mandate not only from our parents, friends, and teachers, but straight from Jesus himself when he said, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Luke chapter 6 and verse 40 here was jesus not saying that when his disciples were fully trained they would be just like him on the one hand those who admonished us were right to do so because calling others names or insulting them even if through hand gestures is wrong for that is exactly what jesus said not to do in matthew chapter 5 and verse 22. returning wrong for wrong regardless of how justified we may feel ourselves to be, is also blatantly wrong. This is covered in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. But on the other hand, to be told to be like Jesus or to love like Jesus is completely devoid of any power if the mandate is not qualified in some way. We have gotten off track in Christianity when we assumed that everyone knew how to be like Jesus or how to love like he loved. Wagging your finger at someone and telling them to be more like Jesus isn't very helpful if neither you nor the person at whom you are wagging that finger are not fully aware of what being like Jesus would look like in this situation or that. What does it mean to love like Jesus? Has Christianity equated loving like Jesus with being a nice person? Does that mean we are supposed to be polite, tempered, non-threatening, tolerant, accepting, not rude, not accusatory, and not blaming of others? Would it not be very Christ-like to point out the faults in other person's thoughts, words, or actions? A monumental cultural shift has occurred. Not so long ago, an emphasis was placed on a personal relationship with Jesus. Nowadays, one is hard-pressed to find anyone under the age of 40 who possesses anything other than a cursory knowledge about Jesus. Yet, knowing about Jesus, what he said and did, and even knowing him personally, is only half the story? Or did we forget the most terrifying prophecy in the entire book of Matthew? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21-23 through 23. When we break this prophecy down, some very shocking details snap sharply into focus. Some of the ones who called him Lord, Lord, or my master, my master will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Who were these people? When we take the context inside of which Jesus was speaking as our framework, he had just introduced the ruse of the false prophet who would be known by his fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that is pretending will be cut down and burned up. Then Jesus instructed that one would know a false prophet by the fruit he bore. Remember, Jesus was teaching his own disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. In no uncertain terms, he wanted them to know that he was not one to have the wool pulled over his eyes. He taught them that not everyone who said to him, Lord, Lord, would enter the kingdom of heaven. He began the list of pretenders with the false prophets. They were false because the fruit they would produce was bad. How was their metaphorical fruit bad? If Jesus was working from the law and the prophets, then he most certainly had Deuteronomy 18 verses 20 through 22 in mind when he declared the warning in Matthew 7, 21 through 23 above. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word That the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Ask yourself if these people really did prophesy, cast out demons, and do mighty works in the name of Jesus, why would Jesus have a problem with them? Why would he tell them to depart from him? He must have still been teaching inside the context of false prophets. That is who these folks were pretending to be. But notice what Jesus will declare to them. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These people claimed to know Jesus, or maybe they knew about Jesus. Either way, one of the most important parts of Jesus' prophecy was not that they knew him, but that he knew them. Jesus must know your name, my friend. If he does not know you, then no amount of knowing him, his words, his life, his family, or his purposes will grant you access to the kingdom. If Jesus does not know you, you do not get in. It's that simple. But how, Mr. Author of this little book, How am I supposed to know whether he knows me or not? Thankfully, Jesus did not leave that inquiry unaddressed. He covered it beautifully in verse 21 of the same prophecy. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That is the one who enters the kingdom the one who does the will of Jesus' Father who is in heaven. Therefore, what determines whether or not Jesus knows you is if you do the will of the Father who is in heaven. And what is the will of the Father who is in heaven? Fortunately, Jesus left us one more clue in this prophecy. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That word lawlessness is a three-part word that every serious Bible-believing human needs to intimately understand. Law is the word Torah in Hebrew. Jesus is not talking about Roman civil law here. He is talking about the only law he ever talked about, the law that is his Father's will. Less is a suffix applied to the ends of words in English which describes the idea of being without for example home is the noun while homeless is an adjective that describes being without a home fault is the noun and faultless describes being without fault ness is a suffix applied either directly to the end of a noun or an adjective that describes the state, condition, or quality of a noun or an adjective. Think forgiveness, laziness, or sickness. So when we put these three morphemes or word parts together, law, les, ness, they form an idea. The idea that Jesus was expressing there in Matthew 7 and verse 23 is that the ones whom Jesus does not know and the same ones who are told to depart from him are the very ones who are in a state, condition, or have the quality of working without or outside of the Torah. That is incontrovertibly what the word lawlessness means. You say that you know me, you say that you follow me. If you knew me and if you followed me, you would be working within or inside of the Torah. His Father's will is that we live inside of his Torah, period. This is what Jesus said to finish out the three-chapter discourse on additions to and subtractions from God's eternal Torah. God's will is that his children do his Torah. This fact can be found in countless places in both Testaments, but see Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 1. Therefore, this must be and is Jesus' will. Consequently, if this is not our will, then Jesus has some words for us. My prayer is that you and I never hear these fateful words. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who worked outside of the Torah. Dear reader, have we only been given the highlight reel of who Jesus is or what he is about? Admittedly, the New Testament is silent on Jesus' entire life except for his birth one story from when he was 12 years old and the end of his life and ministry. I don't know about you, but I really want to be like Jesus. I very much want to act like him, to love like him, and to do life like he does. I want to treat people like he does, serve my wife and kids like he served others. I don't want to draw lines that make distinctions between work-life home life, social life, and spiritual life. I don't believe that I can conduct business affairs with one ethical standard while driving my car or shopping for groceries with a different one. For that is not how Jesus lived. He was consistent across the board. He did not have separate standards of conduct to be decided upon by the circumstances in which he found himself. Living in a Fantasy World For years, in the apologetics class that I was privileged to teach to juniors in high school, I would have the students take a sheet of paper and divide it into two sections. The first section was to be titled Spiritual Activities, and the second was titled Secular Activities. Most of the students did not know what the word secular meant, and that is when I would say, just Google it. They would search for its meaning and come to a definition akin to denoting attitudes, activities, and other things that have no religious or spiritual basis. I would then proceed to have them fill in as many activities under both headings that they could think of. Under spiritual activities, most would write items like prayer, Bible study, going to church, going to chapel, and doing mission work during the summer. Under the heading of Secular Activities, they would write various things like hanging out with friends, doing homework, playing video games, watching TV, babysitting siblings, mowing the lawn, brushing one's teeth, etc. Next, I would ask which list is longer. Without fail, the list under Secular Activities by far outnumbered the list under Spiritual Activities. Then, before I could say anything, the students all knew what was coming. I was going to go on a diatribe about how our Spiritual Activities list should be longer than the secular one. We should all strive to decrease the amount of secular in our lives and increase the spiritual. I could see it written all over their faces. And that's when I would say, I know what you're all thinking, that I'm going to scold you for the length of your lists. I am not. This little exercise has nothing to do with the length of lists. But here's the truth. The very fact that all of you were even able to separate one set of activities as secular from another set as spiritual, reveals a truth about you that even you are not aware of. You have bought into the lie that your life consists of two separate realities, the spiritual and the secular. The Bible, however, never makes the distinction between the spiritual and the secular because the notion of secular is an invention by man. If secular is defined as denoting attitudes, activities, or other things that have no religious or spiritual basis, then nothing in all of existence falls into that definition, because everything that exists is spiritually based. For what has ever existed or exists that was not either brought about by God, or human beings, both of which are spiritually based. Take worship as an example. Among Christians, the predominant idea of worship is that it takes place at a certain time, at a certain place, and in a certain way. Most of the Christians with whom I've spoken about worship think of what we do on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, and Wednesday nights. That is because we tend to meet as a congregation during those times, and the activities in which we engage as a gathering of believers we call worship. And indeed, singing songs of praise to God, taking communion, reading the Bible, hearing a sermon, and praying as a community are definitely part of what is called worship. That is true. But... It is certainly not the full extent of worship. It is then that I would take my students back to their lists and have them consider the following. If doing homework is a secular activity, then why not cheat on that homework, since homework has no spiritual or religious basis? It is then that most students would laugh or holler or high-five their neighbor. Then I would ask, What if you began to see doing a menial task like homework as worship? That sent the light-hearted mood out of the room faster than a toupee in a hurricane. What if you did not cheat or give less than your best because you decided to see the information that you are learning as a gift from God? You also know that it would honor Him for you to keep His commands— One of them being, you shall not steal. So you do your own work, and you do your best, because ultimately you believe that you will answer to Him for how you conducted yourself as a high school student. Or take mowing the lawn. How could that possibly be a spiritual activity or an act of worship? Again, What if you decided to see it as God giving you a home with a garden for you to tend? What if you tended that garden with gratitude? What if you mowed the lawn, not as a terrible punishment laid on your back by your lazy parents, but as an opportunity to take care of and show your appreciation for the living and growing things with which God has entrusted in your care. And what if your lazy parents weren't so lazy, but instead worked all week long to provide you with all of the amazing parts of the life that you live and take for granted day in and day out? Or how about diapers? Diapers need changing and dishes need washing. Ugh! I hate those things, you say, but what if you turned those activities heavenward and saw the babysitting of your siblings, which sometimes includes changing dirty diapers, not as a burden, but as a gift for training yourself and blessing someone else at your own expense. For that is God's definition of Shalom in the Bible versus Egypt's definition of ma'at. Both mean peace, but they are exceedingly different. Ma'at is peace, prosperity, and the good life, but always at someone else's expense, namely the one who is providing it to you against his or her will. Shalom, on the other hand, is peace, prosperity, and the good life, Provided to you at my own expense and by my own choice. It may not be your night to wash dishes, yet if you washed them tonight and turned that chore to the Lord, not only would that bless your family, because we all need clean dishes, but it would honor the one who provides you the food in the first place. It would also show him that you choose God's shalom over the world's ma'at. You have just turned lawn mowing, diaper changing, and dishwashing into worship of the one and only true and living God. Worship indeed happens inside the walls of a church building, no doubt, but far more extensively Worship is meant to happen in our daily lives, which encompasses every single thing that we do. The Matrix All activities in one's life are spiritual, without exception. This is so because we are dualistic beings. That just means that we have both a physical and a spiritual nature. We are physical beings that have bodies, arms, eyes, legs, ears, muscles, and nerves. We are also spiritual beings that consist of a reality that is not physical. Our thoughts and emotions and dreams and hopes do not consist of atoms and molecules. You cannot trip over an idea. We cannot see an emotion under the slide of a microscope. I cannot dissect a number with a scalpel, but a number is no less real than the calculator on which I add to it or subtract from it. Our non-physical minds, personalities, and identities interface with our physical bodies through our brains. Our brains are the keyboard to the computer at which we type the instructions. We think about raising our hand, and it gets raised. I think about a Thai food dinner, and it gets prepared with my hands. But we are not our bodies. If we were merely physical beings, then when a person lost an arm or an eye in an accident, he or she would necessarily be losing a part of him or herself. But that is not the case. I am me, regardless of how many of my appendages I retain or forfeit. That is why our identity remains unchanged throughout our entire lives and is also the reason that there is no statute of limitations on murder. For example, if you murder someone when you are 16 years old and though almost every cell in your body will have regenerated with a new cell thousands of times over throughout your life, you are still the same you at the age of 59 that you were at 16. And because we all intuitively know this to be true, you can and will be tried and convicted of the crime that you committed 43 years ago, though your physical body has changed dramatically over time. In fact, the only time we stop being ourselves is when we die. And those who believe that the Bible is true believe that we remain ourselves even after death. We have been indoctrinated, even inside of our own churches, to believe that one's life consists of two different realities, the spiritual and the physical. Hence the question heard round the youth group circles, How is your spiritual life going? Or, What kinds of things can we do to bolster our spiritual lives? There is no such thing as a spiritual life. There is only life. Life cannot be segregated into secular and spiritual there is nothing that does not have a spiritual basis since the basis of all creation is spiritual people talk about secular music secular movies secular culture someone might even say well what about an x-rated movie is that spiritual or secular at first thought we might be tempted to say good point there is nothing spiritual about pornography and that would be true if by spiritual you mean godly yet spiritual does not mean godly spiritual means non-physical so by definition an x-rated movie has various spiritual components in it humans are both spiritual and physical beings while sex which is also both spiritual and physical, was created and limited by God. How people choose to defile those two realities is another thing altogether. We cannot escape the spiritual realm for at least two reasons. First, there is no realm that extends beyond God's reach. And second, we are spiritual beings. Therefore, to escape the spiritual realm and enter a purely physical realm would be to take leave of ourselves. Jesus knew this reality to be true, and that is why he did not live in the physical world during the work week and then slide into the spiritual world on weekends. Jesus lived one life and one life alone here on earth. That is why he was consistent in his conduct, whether he was walking through a wheat field, cursing a fig tree, or cleaning the temple. Jesus had one goal, one purpose, one aim, and one mission, to do his Father's will. This chapter will focus on how Jesus walked out his Father's will by exposing error and deception, and what that means For the disciple who desires to be like him. We will see how Jesus was not a nice guy some of the time. We will watch how he did not accept and affirm the ideas of the influencers of his day. Jesus had a code and he lived by that code without exception. He invited others to see his point of view, yet he did not sugarcoat the difficult. He did not water down the challenging. He did not toe the line of the ever-changing cultural norms that plagued his people every bit as much as they plague ours. He wasn't afraid to call a spade a spade. He learned how to imitate his Father in heaven as a human being, which was no easy task. For how does one imitate a timeless, spaceless, matterless being that one cannot see, hear, taste, touch, or smell. The 800-pound gorilla in the room. We don't talk about it much because it's uncomfortable, but at times, Jesus was highly controversial, combative, and antagonistic toward the ideas and persons promoting the ideas that dominated the religious landscape in first-century Israel. On occasion, Jesus was anything but nice. One need only read the 23rd chapter of Matthew to see how, quote, nice, end quote, Jesus was to the Torah experts and Pharisees. Listen to our Master. Woe to you, Torah scholars and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Matthew 23 and verse 15. Golly, I don't see that scripture quoted or referenced on too many bumper stickers these days. Did Jesus not criticize the religious teachings of his day? And when found lacking, did he not oppose the religious authorities in matters of faith? Why have we ignored this example? Why did we swallow the lie that to question Christianity's doctrines is to show a lack of faith? Why, even now, are some of us still afraid to question the powers that be? Are we not instructed to be like Jesus? Or Should we be like Jesus only when he is being nice and tender and compassionate and forgiving? Why are we afraid to question our pastors and preachers and teachers and ministers? Are they not the ones who are considered our authorities in matters of faith? Do they not hold the degrees that validate their teachings, their understandings, and their conduct as authoritative? Not very nice. One of the accounts that is lost on many readers of the Gospels shows a side of Jesus that we are not used to seeing. By the twelfth chapter of Matthew, Jesus had already dealt with the facade of piousness touted by the Pharisees on numerous occasions. He had had enough and went on the offensive quite literally. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not permitted by the Torah, our versions say, what is not lawful, to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him? how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which Torah does not permit for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the Torah how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Jesus was speaking to Pharisees, not some farmers who may or may not have spent their entire lives studying and memorizing the Torah. These men were the experts in matters of faith and the self-proclaimed authorities on Torah. There was not a Pharisee alive at this time who would not have been extremely well-read in all of the law of Moses and beyond, for that was their livelihood, their arena, their area of expertise. They knew the law of Moses like the back of their hands. Yet notice the question that Jesus puts to them. At first glance, it seems to be quite innocent. But when one realizes who Jesus was talking to, the question suddenly becomes a very stinging accusation meant to cut right to the quick. Have you not read what David did? Is the question. He did not ask if they understood the story. He did not ask what they were taught about the story. He asked if they had not read the story. This is one of the greatest insults that one Torah scholar can give to another. Have you not read? It would be tantamount to asking an astrophysicist if she had ever seen the moon at full phase the power of the punch of have you not read is so blunt that the pharisees blood must have been boiling within them how dare you ask me if i have not read what kind of authority do you take me for you snot nosed smart mouth little who do you think you are you think you know more torah than i This is precisely the reaction that Jesus hoped to evoke. So he asked it, not once, but twice, to the clot of Torah scholars. Jesus was sick and tired of this band of pretenders distorting and then propagandizing their own version of what any reader of the Torah and the prophets would understand after reading that story. The message was clear. It hit home, and Jesus was wholly unapologetic for any collateral damage his questions might have caused. Not pulling any punches. Jesus was just getting warmed up. If we continue to read in Matthew chapter 23, verses 29 through 33, we get to see our master level a full frontal attack on the impenetrable ivory towers that the religious leaders had built for themselves. Spoiler alert, the impenetrable ivory towers didn't stand a chance. Woe to you, Torah experts and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets." Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you sons of snakes, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Golly gee, someone needs to tell Jesus that he's not acting very Christ-like. Oh, wait, this is Jesus acting very Christ-like. And this, my friends, is what we have shrouded in obscurity for far too long. Jesus did not put up with hypocrisy, deceitfulness, and corruption. He called it out and exposed it for what it was. This is Jesus. Yes, he was compassionate and cared deeply for others. But lest we kid ourselves, he was also intolerant, and unswerving in his zeal for the holiness of God's will. Come, follow me. If you and I really seek to imitate Jesus, the Anointed One, we need to begin doing what Jesus did. What did he do over and over again throughout the Gospel accounts? He challenged the prevailing themes, beliefs, and practices of the religious authorities of his day. In the Gospel of Matthew alone, Jesus neutralizes the religious leaders' teachings in chapters 5, 6, 7, 9, 11, 12, 13, 15, 16, 19, 21, 22, 23, 25, and 26. Fifteen of the 28 chapters of Matthew have Jesus disputing, questioning, and downright contradicting the predominant beliefs and practices of the religious leaders because he found them lacking in continuity, missing in truth, and devoid of fidelity to the standard that God himself established. A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So, what was your teacher like? That is to say, what was Jesus like? He was fire and water. He had a fist of iron and a velvet touch. He put up with a lot, but he had his limits. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. this Is our God. He is long suffering and desires that none should be lost, but He will bring retribution and finality to those who tamper with His plans. Please understand me, dear reader. I am not saying that our pastors and preachers and teachers are deliberately misleading or manipulating God's will, as the Pharisees certainly did. They are not, in my opinion. I am not promoting rudeness or belligerence or being combative for the sake of controversy. What I am saying is that we need to wake up. We have been sleepwalking for hundreds of years. We have accepted the teachings handed down to us without so much as a raised eyebrow. We have all assumed that the ones who went before us toted the mantle of truth. Unfortunately, we never even questioned whether or not they actually had truth to begin with. We need to question everything. We must question our long-held sacred beliefs with gentleness and respect. This is not only sage advice, but also so very necessary in determining if the beliefs that we hold are, in fact, true. To test our faith is nothing new. We're just used to it coming from without. This book is about raising awareness. My brothers and sisters around the world, you must test your own faith, test your own beliefs, test the doctrines, the teachings, and the axioms that our fathers have handed down to us. Because of one thing I am sure, on Judgment Day there will be no one standing next to you, no one to whom you can appeal, and no person on whom you may cast the blame for your own decisions. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. WWJD. What would Jesus do were he to attend one of our church services? Do you believe that Jesus would question anything our pastors or preachers are teaching? If Jesus upbraided the experts in the Torah for their fallacious facts and erroneous edicts, and they actually knew the Torah... How much more would Jesus upbraid our religious leaders today for not knowing the very Torah that he very clearly said in the New Testament would not change until heaven and earth pass away. Imagine, if you will, that a religious leader of today were to pick up this book and arrive at this chapter. What sort of reaction do you think he or she might have? Is this chapter not about advocating that the laity, the common people, begin doing exactly what their teacher and Lord Jesus did during his life? Jesus never advocated the use of violence to accomplish his goals, and neither do I. We absolutely do not need to be mean ugly, rude, or disrespectful. However, we do need to respectfully challenge the doctrines that do not align with what Scripture and the words of Jesus actually say. If a pastor read that last sentence, what would his or her opinion be? Would said pastor agree and celebrate the challenging of the status quo in matters of faith? Or would that pastor purse his lips and take offense at this armchair critic who advocates inquiry and evidence for the credendas of the experts? I have a hunch that not too many pastors, preachers, ministers, and teachers will enjoy this chapter. Yet I myself have worn all four of those hats during my life. And what I have come to realize is that if I want to find truth, that truth will usually hurt a lot. But it is worth it. Truth is always worth it. No one likes to be scrutinized or questioned on what he or she teaches, but we all need to be examined. I need to be questioned and challenged. My thoughts need to be questioned and challenged. My teachings, my words, my standard operating procedures, all need to be questioned and challenged. And so do yours. When our most sacred beliefs have passed through the fire and come out unchanged, we can thank our leaders and forefathers for giving us truth. But after passing through the fire, if there is much dross, revealed by that intense heat then we have some work to do praise god when we have doctrines beliefs and practices that align perfectly with what our master and lord jesus taught we then have something worthy of giving our lives to